Let's recap the B&B principle. The first B stands for birthday and the second for bleach. The principle of birthday states that wherever you go on planet Earth, you will never in your life bump into somebody who does not have a birthday. What birthdays do is inform people that before this day they did not exist. Having not existed, you couldn't have possibly created yourself. Having not created yourself, you couldn't have possibly know on your own what to do with a life you never created. Therefore, B. The second B stands for bleach and is representative of the principle that whatever existed before you arrived on planet Earth will not change its reality just to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes, thoughts and hopes, like bleach. By the time you arrived on planet Earth, bleach was not a friendly drink. Therefore, even if you beg, plead, cajole, threaten, bribe, explain logically to the bleach that it's anyway wet in a bottle and you're on the point of dehydration, it will not become a friendly drink for you for the simple reason that it is not motivated to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes and hopes since it does not need you as evidenced by the fact that by the time you arrived on planet Earth it was here before you. It is therefore independent of you. It therefore will not accommodate you. If you want to remain safe from bleach, you are dependent on the people who were here before your birthday, who are in the know, who will share with you the rules of bleach so that you can accommodate those laws. So that all of life is a massive attempt to discover the rules of life from those in the know who were here before us so that we can accommodate those rules so that we remain safe and happy. So today's topic about the fact that we are never alone since there's only one Hashem and so there's only one of him and we are therefore inseparable to him. So we were, we are always in his presence, which um, very um, easily identifies the contrast between our relationship with Hashem and idolatrous relationships with pagan gods. This is the only relationship that you will ever have in your entire life, that you are always in the presence of the source of your creation, of the source of your relationship with yourself and your relationship with anyone else, and the source of your existence. This is the only relationship. All other idolatrous practices, since all their pagan gods and idols, always had a shape. They could always only occupy one place at a time. So it was always the easiest thing to remove yourself from their presence and do anything you wanted, which is why they liked these idolatrous practices, because it didn't obligate you to anything, because if you felt like doing something that supposedly this God didn't like, which of course you had no evidence of, because the God didn't speak to you, because yesterday you created him, you manufactured him, you made him, so he didn't quite tell you what he likes and what he doesn't like, because he didn't know how to speak, because whoever created him does not know how to give him a power of speech or a soul or any thoughts. But even if in your mythology told you that this God with this shape prefers this over that, you could always get out of his presence and do what you wanted, which is easy to understand why people would rather gravitate towards uh, idols and pagan practices than an all-knowing, omnipresent, all-aware God. So the uniqueness of this relationship is sourced in the fact this is the only relationship in the world where you are 
always, always in the presence of the person, the, the being that you're relating with. Anyone else, you can always physically get out of their presence. But since you're a limited being and you can only occupy one place at a time, your birthday forced you to acknowledge that you're limited. Not having been created, you're going to be limited, finite, only occupy a certain place at a certain time. The person that you're relating with is equally came in with their own birthday, so they're equally limited. So you can perfectly avoid each other. But with Hashem, since there's only one of him, you and him are always inseparable. So that we need to ask ourselves a question how is it possible for us to forget that we are in the presence of Hashem? Since we know theoretically that it's an absolute illogical impossibility for Hashem not to see me now. But somehow we have managed to do a beautiful job at little pockets of amnesia or just somehow forgetting that we're in the presence of Hashem. Even David Amalek said, Shivisi Hashem is always in front of me. Well, of course. What did you think? Where is he? So if Hashem, if David Hamalek had to say it as a way of, so to speak, boasting of himself in a good way of uh, establishing that I'm a righteous individual, I've got my facts straight. I'm always in front of Hashem, even though everyone is always in front of Hashem. It means that there's a challenge of overcoming the desire and the need and the necessity to forget this. So what we need to do is to discuss levels of awareness. Because ultimately, relationships are created by levels of awareness. I'll give an example I thought of last week as I was preparing this class. Imagine you go home on the subway after a trip to Manhattan and a woman comes over to you, a woman you've never in your life seen, not Jewish, never recognized, and she says, I hope you enjoy the blender that you just bought at Macy's. And you are open-mouthed. How would she know that you just bought a blender at Macy's? You could think, oh, I guess that tells her sons, I'm carrying a Macy's bag and the blender's sticking out. You're not. You had part ways with your daughter and she had taken home the Macy's bag with a blender. There is no telltale sign. But you actually did just buy a blender at Macy's. How would she know? You open your eyes wide out totally flabbergasted how does she know and to your enormous puzzling question she responds oh I'll tell you how I know I actually work at Macy's I actually man the cameras the security cameras at Macy's and I watched you paying for it I have my office upstairs and I watched you paying for that blender and I recognize your face you were with somebody else that must have been your daughter or something. I watched you pay for it. You paid for it with a credit card. How do you feel? Suddenly you feel... Oh my gosh, so 
was watching exposed a little violated, intruded upon, mm -hmm. exposed, unsafe, insecure. But if I would ask you theoretically, do you believe that Macy's has cameras? Of course they have cameras. Do you believe that somebody is actually sitting at those cameras and watching people? Of course they are. Where, where, where are we? We're in the 21st century. Where do you think we are? Where do you think I come from? Somebody is watching the cameras, definitely. Definitely. No, not particularly, no, not particularly. Nowadays, everyone and everything is being watched. You have no idea. Also watched, of course. Everything, for sure, a thousand percent. They have a huge staff, of course. Nowadays, for sure. Now, theoretically, you know that. So... The existence of being watched is known. Especially the more the world is advancing, the cheaper the cameras are becoming, the more it's becoming a way of life. We know we are being watched all over. You're being tracked. Tracked, watched. We know that very well. But the experience of coming face-to-face -face physically with a person who actually informed you and made herself known to you that she is the one who watched you by that blender, it puts you in a whole different space of reality. And what's that space called? Awareness. It's not that she gave you new information, but she made you aware, and that awareness became went into your part of who you are and you can be sure next time you're buying something in Macy's you know you're being watched even though the same is true for any department store and for many many other places that we visit but what we're seeing here clearly is the link that we are capable of removing from our conscious mind in order not to feel the awareness of Hashem upon us, that link is awareness. And Hashem gave us this challenge to allow for free will. But the more we overcome this challenge and make ourselves aware that Hashem is watching us all the time, and I see, and ear hears, and everything is being recorded and written down. The Yad Kol Adam Choysen Boy, the hand of every person is writing his own destiny, we say in the Tfilas of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The more we can achieve that, the more righteous we are. What ultimately the demarcation line or the definition of what causes a tzaddik, a righteous person, to transition on a higher level, that he's in a whole different genre, a whole different category than the average person is, it's exactly this what we are discussing. His level of awareness of Hashem being in front of him is so strong and so powerful as to give him all the strength and wisdom and power that he needs to act righteously all the time. He doesn't. He knows that there's no way under the sun logically that he and Hashem are separated for one minute because only one Hashem. But he is able to act upon it. He's not capable of forgetting it. Actually, in 
Last week, Sedra in Mikates, I stumbled upon a fascinating medrash that Aisha's Poitifa, where Yosef was forced to hang around way too much, um, she, you know, we know she really drove him crazy. I mean, five times a day she was at it and, and all day long. And even after she managed to put him in jail, it says that Hashem was with him and his master liked him. So the Medrash says, what does that mean? The Medrash said that the, he used to like the way he rinses the cups and sets the table for some reason. So every single day, he brought him home from jail for one hour, that he should set the table for him for that hour, and then he let him go back. In that hour, his wife started all over with him from scratch. And this is what she would say. She would say to him, only this I did for you, I can do much more abusive, worse things for you. Only I put you in jail, I can do much worse things. He would answer her, Hashem oisem mishpat la'ashukim. Hashem does justice for those who are being abused. That's in Tehillim 146. She said, you know, I'm capable of telling my husband that no one should give you food in jail. You are going to starve if you don't do what I want you to do and lay with me or do an Avera. She said, he answered, Hashem Hashem gives food for the, for the starving one. She said, you know what, I can get you jailed up forever. You'll never get out. He said, Hashem mata asurim. Hashem releases those. She said, you know, I'm capable of getting someone to beat you black and blue so that all your bones will be bent out of shape forever. He was calm. He said, Hashem zoikiv kafufim. Hashem straightens those who are bent. She said, I can, get, I can gorge your eyes out. You'll be blind for life. He said, Hashem Paker Ibrahim. Hashem opens the eyes of the blind. She went so far as to take an iron, have created an iron spit and put it around his neck that he shouldn't be able to look to the right or to the left and put herself in front of him that he should be forced to look at her if he did not look at her. And so, since I read this medrash, in the morning when I say these brochas, I say to Hashem, you gave us the strengths of Yosef Atzadik. He said all these things. Give us these strengths. It's in our brochas. I'm sure that's why Hazan included it in our morning brochas, because we need all those strengths. The difference between Yosef Atzadik and the average person, that's why Yosef is called Tzadik Yisoydaila, and his chus is still, you know, helping Klal being Am Kodesh Lashem to this day, the Kedusha of Yosef, it's because he, no matter what anybody told him, he had the awareness of Hashem with him all the time, all the time, all the time. You see the way he treated his brothers, even after he revealed himself to them and he had no grudges and everything was, he was trying, he was calming them down. And he was being their therapist, you know, and so as they were freaking out, he was calming them down and treated them so well. You can tell that he didn't forget for one split second that Hashem was with him. So, I want to share with you a fascinating story that I read in an art scroll book called Shavuos. It's a bone-chilling story, but since it has such a good source, I have to share it with you. It says here that Ramey Lotowitz 
who studied in Masifted Ferris Yerushalayim. Originally, he was the part with Rav Nossam Sherman from Artscroll. They studied under Moshe Feinstein, and he was present when the following episode occurred. A woman who was a Holocaust survivor came before Moshe, saying, after the war, she had been permitted to remarry on the basis of evidence that her husband had perished in the concentration camp. A well-known rob in one of the displaced person camp had given, had ruled that her husband could be assumed dead and had given her a document which she had lost in the post-war chaos, attesting to the, his decision. It was on the base of this rob's ruling and the woman told Ramosha that she had remain, remarried. Now, after more than 20 years, when her children were grown and of marriageable age, she had learned that her first husband was still alive. The Rav, whose ruling she had quoted, was no longer alive to verify her story. Imagine sitting there and hearing this as a Talmud. What would you do? I can't imagine what the atmosphere in the room was like. Ramosha asked Thorne to repeat her story a second time and then a third time. The atmosphere in the room was tense as Ramosha brow followed a deep concentration. Then this giant of Torah who epitomized kindness, compassion, rose, leaned across the table and said agitatedly to the woman, It cannot be. I knew the Rav of whom you speak. He was a gone, a Torah genius and a tzaddik, and I do not even approach his ankles of Torah. I have permitted over 2,000 Agunos to remarry since the war, and never did the first husband reappear. Now you're telling me that such a thing could have happened to that tzaddik? It's impossible. It cannot be. It cannot be. It cannot be. As those present looked on incredulously, the woman broke down in tears and admitted that her story was indeed false. She had been sure that her husband could not possibly have survived, and so using the name of the deceased Rob, she had contrived the story about the document so that she could remarry. But as Moshe's faith in Siata de Shmaya, being granted to worthy scholars, brought the truth to light. Now, I don't know the practical aspect of what he told her to do. The story ends there. But for me, it ends there, but it begins the discussion that for the difference, what the source of what makes the difference between the average person and the great person and the righteous person and the Rav and the Dine and the Rebbe is that relationship with Hashem is real it's so real as to be undeniable it is so actual it's so concrete it's so real in the flesh that Ramosha Feinstein when he heard this story in the name of that role he knew there is no way under the sun if Hashem promised Shalom Rav Hashem says you, to the tzaddikim, to the dayonim, to the rabbonim, to his da'as Torah, you are my mouthpiece. And my relationship with my creation, with my people that I created, my relationship with them is real. If I tell them not to do something, 
then there will be consequences if they will do it because it's a real thing. If I tell them to do something and they will do it, then there will be consequences to do it because they are creating a real reality. Everything is real. So if I tell my created beings that if they don't know what to do, they should check in with me and I will communicate with them directly because everything is real, then when they go to ask a Torah, a Rav, a Dain, a Tzaddik, what to do, what is my will, I will tell that Tzaddik, that Rav, that Dain through them. And I will not mislead anyone because there's only one of me. And I created one law. And there's only one way of being in a satisfying relationship with me. In the way that I tell you to and everything is real. So Ramosha Feinstein, you know what the story says? What it says to me? He didn't get distracted. He didn't get sidetracked. He just looked at the truth in the eye and said, it's impossibility. It violates the law of life. It's an illogical impossibility. It's, it's what, what do you do when an irresistible force crashes against an indestructible force? Rabbi Miller said. There's no such thing. It's an absolute impossibility. There's no way you got a header from this rub. Because it's an impossibility. To which she had to admit, I didn't. Because everything is real. To a tzaddik, everything is real. My mother told me that she, from the name of the Shatzer rule, the Shatzer Zayda, my grandfather, who actually was the Rebbe of Ramaya Shapira, and actually convinced Ramaya Shapira not to go to college. And so it's his week, it's his yomtiv this week. So, um, my mother told me that he once went into, in London, it's called a black taxi. You have a yellow taxi, you have a black taxi. And uh, he went into him on an Irish Shabbos uh, to go to the mikveh. And the first thing he asked him, the driver, is, are you Jewish? He said, yeah. He said, you keep Shabbos? He said, no. He said, why not? He said, I need to make a living. So Shastra said, the Torah says, you're making a dying, not a living. <laughs> He says he's making a living. You're making a dying. Because to a tzaddik, everything is real, simple, uncomplicated, natural, organic, absolute a description of reality. Every mitzvah in the Torah, every communication with Hashem, who is our creator, who's the only one who will always be in a relationship with no matter where we are, in life and in death. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a body or out of body. It doesn't matter in your pre-life experience and your after-life experience. You're with Hashem because there's only one of Him. And so that's really the source of, uh, of a tzaddik's life. The other side of the coin is, since Hashem created us, so that we can be creators of good for ourselves because he wants to give us the opportunity to be the creators of our own pleasurable destiny and created us like him, like he's a creator. Hashem is 
everything. He's all there is. So he's also, so to speak, the owner of all complications because he is at the source of everything that exists. So in a way, we also need to be complicated beings. In a way, we also need to be sophisticated. He created us like him, like he is totally sophisticated, totally the source of all sophistication, totally the one and only source of all the varieties that exist in this world, all the dynamism, all the chemistry, all the conflicting sources and, and, and what reality, what creation on every level of creation is made out of inanimate and, and, and world of vegetation and animals and human beings and then all the beauty of this world. I mean, think about it. Let's go back to our Marshall of the Macy's woman, right? So this woman from Macy's appeared, made herself known to you and she appeared to you in the flesh. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, at this point, the second she informed you who she is and what she knows about your life, in that minute, you formed a relationship with her. You remember her face, you're looking at her, and you formed a certain impression and the pressure went inside you and a certain relationship with her. We're not saying it's positive or negative, it's just an existence relationship, more than, on a level of awareness, more than when she was the anonymous woman sitting next to you on the tree, before she revealed to you who she is and what she knows about you. So the level of awareness has now taken on a whole different quality, a whole different combination. And your feeling towards her, a complicated feeling, it's a combination of many different types of feelings. Let's say you're like feeling intruded upon, but then when you think about it deeper, on a certain level, you may be happy that there is security in Macy's. Because one day it may benefit you if there's security. So there might be a part of you that may be happy that there's security. Right? And then there's a it makes you think about this world's level of safety. And then you think, but I'm glad there's something to combat it, to protect us. And then your feelings and your thoughts get complicated about this. So you're having a certain relationship with her right now. But the truth is, if you think about it deeper, it doesn't end there. Why? Because you know very well that she, who hired her? There's a personnel management hiring team. They hired her to look at you buying the blender. So even though right now you don't know what the person who hired her looks like, but there is an existing relationship between you and her and the blender and the person who hired her. Now the person who hired her also got hired by somebody to be the personnel management and also has a whole world of relationships. So ultimately, your brain can go on and on and on and on. Who produced the cameras? Who delivered the cameras? Who designed the cameras? Who wrote the manual? The user's manual for the cameras. Everyone is somehow interconnected. And you can land up till anywhere, anywhere in the world. How, where it was produced, and out, and ultimately there's a relationship. But so you could believe that you have a relationship with anyone or anything under the sun, unbeknownst to you. 
but what's the difference between you right now and the relationship with this anonymous person who lives in New Zealand, who writes the books for the user's manual for the cameras, how they should get installed in Macy's, the difference between you and them right now is that right now that person never appeared to you in the flesh. So they never made themselves reveal to you so that you don't have the awareness of relationship with that person in New Zealand. But the relationship on a certain level exists because all of mankind and all of existence is somehow interconnected. And one is feeding off the other. The anthropic principle of man, man was designed to survive and survive and make his environment work for him. So somehow we are all interconnected, but the fundamental difference between the relationships that we thrive upon and that are vibrant and that are exciting and that are a give and there's a take and there's an exchange of ideas and there's an exchange of communication and there's love and there's giving and there's taking and there's a connection of souls and there's a reality. is It all has to do in the level of the awareness, nothing else. So that when Hashem is telling us, we, Shivisa Hashem, like some of the goal of life is, the first halach in Shulchan Aruch is, Shivisa Hashem, like the summit, that Hashem is in front of me all the time, is the goal of life is to remember the fact that Hashem is in front of us all the time, because then everything is very real, and we react very, very differently to life. But part of the same equation is, I don't know if you ever noticed, there's a very fascinating fact about all our great people, our avos, our imahos, our patriarchs, our matriarchs, Yosef Atzadik, Rus, all the great personalities in our Tanakh and our scriptures, every single one of them were exposed to enormous, horrific, unacceptable evil. I don't know anyone who made it in the annals of the as a hero in our life who didn't in, come face to face in the flesh with horrific evil. All of them. And the variety of evils that they came face to face with. I mean, our imagination wouldn't be able to go there until you read the Pesachim in the Torah. Until you read the whole Tanakh. You know, you want to tell your children dramatic bedtime stories? Start going through the Tanakh. Nobody can do a better job. No one. The Medrash says, I mean, the whole, I mean, the whole, the ideas that the categories, the genres are being swallowed up in a whale. I mean, that, what's that if not drama? We are so used to these stories that we don't, See, you know, three women at the crossroads of eternity saying goodbye to each other. The tragic, tragic, tragic scene that ended up in the greatest glory. Rus Nomi Arpa. One kisses her mother-in-law and says goodbye to morality forever. And a nano split second of human choice. And the other one clings to her mother-in-law in a nanosecond of human choice the lands had the glory forever David Melech Yisrael that's Rus, that's drama if what not what a split second choice can do affect your whole eternity so we need to ask ourselves this question what is it about evil 
that is servicing us in our goal of constant awareness of Hashem. This is the question we need to face head on and not to be afraid of this question. Because to deal with it by trying all the time to run away from evil, you're not going to be successful. Because we see that Hashem is placing evil in our midst all the time. Especially us, the constant victims of terrorism, the constant victims our whole history of anti-Semitism. Avram Avinu started off his career like this. So we must come to the conclusion, whether we like it or not, we have no choice, but undeniably, inescapably, to come to the conclusion by process of elimination that coming face to face with evil is something that we need to actualize and concretize and heighten and stimulate and motivate and saturate and fulfill our whole entire beings with awareness of Hashem. Look how Avram Vino started his career. Somebody once said to me from a secular background, you people, you indoctrinate your kids from day one. You give them no free will. You give them no choice. You start with your religious coercion from day one. She saw the way I was talking to my little kids. So I said to her, we people, we are the only nation in the entire world that we tell our kids as soon as we can, first opportunity, we tell them, you know why you are Jewish? You know why I am Jewish? You know why there's a Jewish nation? You know why we do mitzvahs? Because our great-grandfather turned around to his father at three years old and he said, Tati, this doesn't make sense and I'm not going along with it. So his father said, love Romulo, go run along and play. These issues are too heavy and lofty and philosophical and big for you. It's not going to help you go run along and play. He says, I'm not playing no nothing. I don't need this thing called life if it doesn't make sense. If I never had life, I never needed life. Now that I have it, I'm going to have to do something decent with it. So his father said, look, if you're going to keep badgering me, I'm going to take you to Nimrod. And you know what he'll do with infidels like you? He'll burn you at the stake publicly. He'll kill you and he'll burn you. So little Avraham says, you can do that if you have to, but I can do nonsense. If I never had life, I never needed life. Now that I have it, it's got to make sense. This just makes no sense. Here you are making this idol and then this idol that you just created is going to help you do what? It just makes no sense. We indoctrinate our kids. We tell our children from day one, if your dad doesn't make sense, don't go along with it. Because you've got a beautiful brain. Because you didn't create yourself. Because Hashem created you. And created you with brains. And things make a certain amount of sense. We indoctrinate our kids. The entire reason we're Jewish is because somebody turned around to his father and said, I can't do this just because you did. So that's why to this day we're passionate about revealing monotheism to the world. Because it's the only thing that makes sense. So the truth is that 
looking at evil is the the one of the strongest opportunities we have to turn us into creators because when we look at evil in the eye and say i am not going to be that in that minute you created a new you you are forced to dig into your essential self and to define yourself on which side am i on which category am i am i on the side of evil or am i on the side of good am the side of godliness because i share him in front of me and i'm aware of him and i know what he wants out of me and i want to fulfill his desire all the time or i am i on the side of evil you don't have a stronger way of proclaiming your self definition be then by making a choice of very clearly and very officially separating yourself from evil and saying i am on the side of good and that's how we know that ultimately the good will prevail because when ashem created us he created us as beings that are capable of making that choice and since ashem called us amisrol the racious he said you beracious barlikim asram varets in the beginning rashi says bishvil racious for the jewish nation who are racious who are a beginning what does that mean that a nation is a beginning it means that it's a nation comprised of thousands and millions of people who made a decision that i the purpose of my existence is to accommodate the reason for existence the cause for existence the beginning of the existence the purpose of existence is so that i should accommodate hashem's reason for creating me Hashem's reason for creating me is so that I should choose good and I will all the time align myself to that beginning to that vision of his to that plan that he had to that purpose that he had to that first thought that he had to that first desire that he had to that first craving that he had he created me to fulfill his craving to be like him to be good to be godly i won't forget that cause i will be a beginning i will be like him a beginning so that all these beginnings people got together and became am israel we became our own beginnings and we constantly have to fight evil and every time we fight evil we are recreating ourselves rebeginning ourselves reevaluating the cause of existence if i never had life i never needed life now that my life doesn't make sense that purpose of my life is to do this and this and that if it doesn't make sense probably what went through Yosef Atzadik's mind if i'm not, not forgetting bat hashem every single minute means not forgetting racious chokhma yeras hashem the beginning of all wisdom tells us shlomo melech is the fear of hashem he probably thought to himself all the time what am i doing in jail what am i doing in this house obviously hashem is trying to test me that even though yes i experience 
terrible hatred from my brothers, that's not pleasant. Terrible jealousy from my brothers, that's not pleasant. I was pretty innocent. As you repeated a dream, it's not my fault that Tati loves me more than anybody else. I'm pretty innocent. Yes, it's true. But what am I going to do about it now? Now this woman is trying to drive me crazy, trying to get me to sin. Cannot be that I came down on this world to give into her. Impossible. Must be that I came down to, I'm here, I landed here to fight her. That's my ratios. That's accommodating the reason for the cause of my being here. And all the time remembering that satir. Avram said to himself, cannot be that I came down to serve idols like the rest of the world. Impossible that this should be the cause and the reason for my existence. I'm going to have to find this. Well, if it's not the reason, but it's here in front of me and they're trying to get me to be like them, my only choice is to fight and to fight and to fight. And every time we're fighting, we are recreating ourselves, recreating ourselves and putting upon ourselves a very strong label, very identifiable, unmistakable, clearly, clearly marked, absolute fact that I am on the side of the racist. I am the side of the cause of the reason for the beginning and I'm accommodating that cause and I'm not moving away. Really, that means a very strong self-awareness so that our awareness of Hashem, that he is our creator and he is in front of us all the time. And the uniqueness of this relationship is that it's the only relationship where we are always together, one, with the cause of our existence. That strong awareness makes me all the time remember what does this cause of my existence want from me now? And it actually gives you a lot of strength and a lot of, clarity, a lot of clarity. So, and with a fascinating midrash that, um, it's, it's a Gemara, that asks a, a question. The Chachme Devaya Tuna, the sages from Athens, it's in Rome, Athens? Greece, Greece, uh, Greece. They um, would like to dialogue with the sages. In those days, only the Jewish sages were, were literate. I mean, everyone was literate first. Literacy was always the most important thing for us. We were the only ones who were always literate because it's a biblical obligation, the Vishnantan of that father has to teach his children and to be literate. And if they don't, then they have to hire someone. The rest of the world, only the wealthy people who could afford it were literate. So the Goyim would always like to dialogue and debate with the sages. That, and we have many of these discussions recorded because who else was literate? And the Jews were knowledgeable and smart because it's what we have to do with our life. And um, so they asked uh, the Chachma de Baratuna, uh, the sages of Rome, the philosophers, asked the sages a question. And the question was, when the salt decays, with what will you preserve it? And the sages answered, with the afterbirth pangs of a mule. What's the question? What's the answer? It was a riddle. So a mule is an infertile donkey who can never give birth. So he can never have afterbirth pangs. So it's a, just a, a smart way of saying it's impossible. It's never going to happen. With the afterbirth pangs of a mule, it's never going to happen. So that was the answer. But what's the question? The question was like this. The they were talking about the issue of evil. And evil and, and we'll make it in contemporary terms like terrorism. Why do we land in Golis? Why do we land in exile? Why does the Jewish nation land in exile all the time? 
so politically because they hate us. The dislike of the unlike and being a homeless nation without a homeland and the whole spiel. And they just hate us and they feel, you know, we take their money from them and we etc. etc. Okay, this is no news to anybody who studies history. But we know that the spiritual reason is because why aren't we in our homeland that Hashem promised Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Avram, why aren't we in a homeland? Because spiritually we are not measuring up enough to the opportunity to be there and sustain ourselves there spiritually. So ki soki es is the land is throwing us out. So what happens? So we get kicked out of our homeland. Then we go into exile. Then we suffer terrorism, anti-Semitism. We were, for the fact that we are Jewish. So then we are unmistakably reminded that we're Jewish, and we know that there's no escape <coughs> of being Jewish. So some people will try to hide their Jewishness, but then history has shown them it, it won't help if you hide your Jewishness. And some people say, well, you know something, I'm anyway Jewish, I may as well uh, uh, be Jewish and uh, return to Hashem, because I'm anyway suffering, so I may as well, maybe I'll suffer less. If I'll do what Hashem wants, maybe I'll suffer less. Some people, the anti-Semitism is going to wake them up to their glorious heritage. They may actually enjoy being religious. It's a, different people have different different responses. But either way, it throws you in your face that there is a camera watching you, and you're Jewish, and you can't un-Jewish yourself. And your lack of awareness to your obligations of Jewishness isn't going to solve any problems. You can't escape anything. This is it. There's a, there are cameras, you are Jewish, and nothing is going to help. So it comes out that a person trying to forget his Jewishness is a cause for a person being assimilated and lost amongst the nations and losing his Jewishness. You try to deny it, and if it won't help the next few generations, they really won't know. There, unfortunately, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews walking around nowadays, and they do not even know if they are Jewish or not, because it's already a few generations that already don't know. So that's how people get lost, and that's how historically nations have gotten lost from all that. So, but then, what preserves? There's still always some Jews left who know beyond the shadow that they're Jewish and everyone knows they're Jewish because they look Jewish, because they dress Jewish, because they behave Jewish. Why do the anti-Semites come attack religious Jews? Because they, they're sure that they're Jews. Those who don't look Jewish, it won't help them to attack them because they didn't achieve to make a statement that they hate Jews because they didn't know that they're Jewish. So they attacked religious ones who definitely look Jewish. Like this, they can achieve their purpose and make a statement, I hate Jews, which is why religious people get attacked because they look more Jewish. Somebody doesn't look Jewish, it, doesn't, it won't happen. They look just like a non-Jew, so what does it help to attack them? That's a simple reason why religious Jews get attacked. So it comes out, there will always be a group of religious Jews who are suffering anti-Semitism, how it has always been. Nowadays, it's also this way. But what preserves the identity of the Jewish nation in Golos, 
What is the salt that preserves the quality? Salt is always a preservative. When we pickle our food, it lasts longer. So what preserves the fact that there is a Jewish nation in the world and the world cannot exist without a Jewish nation because the world was created to accommodate the Jewish nation, Bereshit Rufil Reishit, what preserves it? In a funny, indirect way, actually, exile is quite a preservative because ultimately, those who hate us will gather together all the people who are Jewish and treat them all badly together. Like Hitler said, he doesn't care if it's patrilineal, matrilineal, he doesn't care. Once a Jew, always a Jew. And he just, he dumped them all together, threw them all together in the cattle cars. And evil people who were assimilated 50 years and had married Germans and were married non-Jews, they were f- reminded, you're Jewish, you're Jewish, Jewish, and there's no escape from your Jewishness, which is true which is intrinsically true. There is no escape from Jewishness. Being Jewish is a a description of a type of soul you have, nothing to do with with your behavior. It's just a description of who you are. So what ultimately preserves uh, Judaism? What's the salt? Golos. Unfortunately. Golos, in 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 an indirect way. So he asked the question, what will happen when the salt decay? What will happen when the gollus will be, the exile will have the opposite effect? People will be so fed up from being hurt, for being attacked by the Jewish, they're going to do everything under the sun to make sure that they're not Jewish. They won't tell their children. And after three, four generations, they won't know that they're Jewish and they'll be lost among the nations, which is exactly what's happening now. Ultimately, you're going to lose the whole... What will happen when the salt will decay? when the solution will no longer act as a preservative. It won't identify people's Jewishness. It will cause people to do everything under the sun to assimilate amongst the nation and be together with all the non-Jews so you won't have a Jewish nation at the end. That was his question. So he answered, without the birth banks and meals, impossible, it's never going to happen. Why? Because he explained like this. He said... In the end, what I call this concept, in my mind I call this concept, that you are, all your life, either you're inspiring or you're expiring. Meaning, you as a person, you are always an opportunity, either you're inspiring people to follow your lead, and to emulate your righteousness and to be close to Hashem and make use of the awareness that Hashem is always in front of you as he's an inseparable part of you, or you act against that by ignoring Hashem and pretending that he isn't in front of you. Now, interesting enough, in an interesting way, there will be some Jews will be so terrible, like the reform, the liberals, the Zionists, the, those people who advocate a lifestyle that Hashem hates and he writes in his Torah that's abomination. Unfortunately, they are liberal Jews. They will act as such a disgusting, repulsive, revolting, so horrific image in front of some Jews that some Jews who are not so sure on which side they want to be on, if they want to be on the good side or the bad side, 
but they got repulsed by people who crossed all red lines and went so, so, so far that the, the repulsion inside them gave them the energy to fight the evil and to join the camp of the righteous because they said to themselves, so far I don't want to go, so bad I don't want to be. It's immoral, it's unethical, it's disgusting. I need to go back to the word of God. I need some morality and ethics in my life. We can't live like animals in the jungle. Life isn't safe for our kids this way. What are we teaching our kids? Do I can't raise kids that way. And then inadvertently, bit by bit, by osmosis, by searching for a more moral, ethical consciousness, they're getting closer and closer to what we call the right until they get an opportunity to become more righteous and more righteous and more righteous. So if you look at this cycle in a very strange, weird, indirect way, you could identify that some people's terribleness has reached such a out-of-control proportion that devastating, like, so decadence has become to such a level of disgust that it actually motivated some people to become good from that because they didn't want to be like that. So their expiration causes inspiration in a funny, indirect way. So that there's a cycle here going on. You act, the worse you act, the better I become. So that the Tana answered him, it's never going to happen with the afterbirth pangs of a moon. Because there'll still be always a tiny, at least if it's a tiny group, but there'll be a tiny group of loyalists who will use that very disgusting to give them the energy to fight evil and to be even better. And that's really what makes us complicated. That's what makes us like our creator. Being forced to combat evil in such a complicated, convoluted way and constantly having to choose in our mind, is it right, is it wrong, how far do I want to go? What are the choices I'm making for myself and my family? I'm very much aware that my moral choices are affecting my family, affecting my generation, affecting eternity. Three women at the crossroads of you or literally of eternity, making a choice once and then a second choice. And we, and that's what makes us complicated. And that's what makes us creative. That's what makes us real. Again, with the awareness that it's the only relationship that we have, where we are always constantly in front of Hashem, and with the awareness that Hashem is watching our brains going through all the back and the forth and the considerations and the deliberations and the complications and the yes and the no. And all that is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah of combating evil inside me, trying to choose what's right in the end. And all this gives strength to the loyal righteous ones. What the tunnel was answering, these Chachamim uh, of Greece, we're not worried that the salt in the end of the days won't act as a preservative. It can never, ever decay. Never, ever, ever. Because in the end, righteousness will prevail because there is nobody who can defeat Hashem's purpose in creation. And his purpose in creation was to reveal his goodness and his righteousness and to make us into righteous people. In the end, we are all going to be righteous. And then we'll all choose the beginning and the righteousness. And in the end, the, we know that when it comes to holiness, Kedusha, we go by 
quality, not by quantity, because it's so saturated and so powerful and so real and so strong. So even if you have only a tiny group of loyalists against millions and millions and millions of disloyal people, in the end they will still prevail because it's the quality of their attaching themselves to Hashem that has the power to overcome all the evil.